Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois. Thank you for attending today in a COVID-19 world, and I'm pleased to introduce a very special guest for us this week, Danny Gilligan, CEO of Data Republic. Danny, how are you today? I'm very well, Frank. Thank you for having me on the show. No worries. And Danny, where, where are you today in Australia? Are you in Melbourne, Sydney? Where exactly are you right now? Uh, it's a crisp early morning in Sydney uh, today. Interesting. And just, just for our listeners who are listening both in Europe and in the States, Obviously, we're seeing a lot of press of late that it seems like you guys have managed to get get the coronavirus under control. Is that correct? It's starting to look that way. Um, we've just started lifting restrictions uh, on contact. Um, and I believe there'll be um, a discussion in Parliament end of this week about more materially lifting. And some states are ahead of others. New South Wales, where I am, is probably the hardest affected. But um, it's everyone's starting to feel a little bit positive, but then it'll just come down to border control, I guess, at that point. You know, it's interesting for our listeners, uh, there, there is a good conflict of interest between Danny and I. So personally and professionally, we have a number of conflicts and Danny, I still go back to the coffee we had, I think it was that Wednesday or Thursday in Sydney, uh, just ahead of the lockdown, uh, by the PM in, in Australia. So it's amazing to see how far you guys have come since then. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I think we talked at the time, it was still very early data that things were going to be bad. And uh, <laughs> I don't also, I think that we might have guessed that on the virus front, the secondary impacts economically, I don't think anyone could have predicted. It's just amazing. And, and you know, you know, it's fascinating to use that as a as a, an interesting segue. I, your company, Data Republic, is one of the most fascinating companies that I've had the chance to get to know. And I, and I have to be careful because I could easily launch into an infomercial here. But, but for the sake of our listeners who range from hedge funds to economists to what, what I'll call the Johnny Six Packs of the world in the tri-state area in New York, what would be the easiest way for them to understand Data Republic? Well, Data Republic is infrastructure to enable organizations uh, to achieve more innovation with their data outside their organization without compromising privacy and risk. So the two main ways um, 
companies use our platform is either to enable external capability companies, so AI, ML, or data analytics companies who need access to enterprise data to do so quickly um, with great governance. Or um, more interestingly, where two organizations want to combine their data, two or more want to combine their data and collaborate together on a joint data asset, again, built on a premise of good governance, security, and privacy. So, Danny, let, let, let's expand that. And again, for the, for the sake of listeners who who may not grasp all of that. So the the assumption is if I'm an institution and couldn't couldn't I independently have my own platform controlling and, and governing that data? Um, absolutely. Uh, you 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 could create mechanisms and sandboxes, etc. Um, and that might work uh, in certain circumstances, but those circumstances are generally limited. So, for instance, if you're a, a large insurer um, who's built some capability and then now you want to collaborate with a large airline um, because brings two of those different data sets together, create a whole new insight, then the challenge often is firstly a legal one. What's the agreement mm-hmm. you've got to put in place to govern that? And then secondly, whose technology are you going to use? And where does the data go? And so the problem of having a bespoke uh, arrangement in this world is it limits your options. Um, so that's why we think of it very much as, as infrastructure. Um, and uh, what we think we're building is the first truly networked enterprise software in that the utility to every customer increases as every new customer adopts the same software. And how, if we bifurcate both the, the, the governance component from, from the infrastructure component, because someone uh, here in Singapore who was, interestingly enough, trying to explain Data Republic to me, they didn't realize that you and I knew one another, but they said that there was a lot of analogies to what you were trying to achieve and what SWIFT has achieved uh, on, on their end. And because couldn't you have just stopped at the governance side? Couldn't you have just said that, hey, this is really a legal problem and a cross-border issue and, and that's what we're solving? Could it have stopped just there? You know, it's a really, it's a really good point, Frank. There are, there are so many problems and challenges um, in the complexity of inter-organizational data sharing that we could have picked just any one of those problems probably and focused quite hard on it. In some respects... Um, you know, we're doing uh, a little bit of all of the problems. So the problems that go towards legal, the problems that go towards um, governance software, workflows, access, the problems that go towards auditing, the problems that go towards um, re-identification risk and PI matching. So (laughs) each one of those could be a company in its own right, Mm -hmm. uh, to be perfectly honest. So it is... it is interesting, but uh, we've we've been on a journey largely following our customers uh, and responding to what they're telling us and iterating our way towards what we think are the optimal uh, set of technologies that customers need um, to really engage in this world of governed data ecosystems and governed data liquidity. That's interesting. And when, and when you, in the, in the early days of the company, because I mean, obviously this is not a small problem that that you're addressing. This is absolutely massive, and and it's fascinating now, even in a in a COVID nineteen world, how much of the discussion now has been around data, you know, and 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 sharing that data, you know, let alone in the United States, uh, but but cross border. How did how did you guys make the decision as to where globally 
to focus first because it, it, and again this is a bit of a moving bogey for you because you know the rights and privacy you know that's still a moving target in a lot of jurisdictions yeah i mean that's a really interesting question you know um uh what you know why are we born in in australia and why is our first major market outside of australia singapore um they're not they're not really accidents um this is a journey we've been on for quite some time uh, in the uh, Australian market. And there are two critical regulatory shifts that are taking place globally that are happening at different rates in different markets that are creating what I would call the functioning market conditions for governed data economies. And they're conflicting regulatory shifts. One of those is an increasing arc on privacy. So we've seen this pretty consistently over the last couple of years, but it's the broadest possible concept of privacy. It's privacy, data sovereignty, um, consent, uh, penalties, etc. And, and that arc is only ratcheting up. Um, you know, so GDPR was the single biggest, um, I guess, uh, stone in the pond to create ripples in the last couple of years. That was 2015. Um, CCPA in California. Uh, there is the first ever law for citizen privacy in the US. The Privacy mm-hmm. Act in Australia is 1988. So we've had wow. privacy foundations for an extremely long time. PDPA, uh, Singapore's version was 2012. So they're also quite sophisticated and have a long history here. So in, in these markets, you've got organisations that have built very strong foundations in, in privacy. The conflicting uh, shift that's taking place is open data and data portability. Uh, And that started in Europe with PSD2, which was a pretty loose first draft, morphed into a very sophisticated regime in open banking in the UK, which is still quite narrow. And again, it was Australia that took that for the first time to be an an economy-wide consumer right, consumer data right, uh, which I think is going to be mirrored in, in data portability laws in Singapore. So you've got these conflicting constructs of more privacy, governance, sovereignty, um, and risk management, and more sharing at the same time. And they create uh, perfect conditions for what we call governed data economies. And so Australia and Singapore, to some degree, are at the front lines of that UK, very close behind. And and this is one of the rare markets where the US is is about two years behind um, the rest of the world on both of those conditions. Well, the, the, and I will bite my tongue as hard as I can to keep U.S. politics out of this discussion, but I notice, uh, U.S. politics aside, how, to the degree that you're comfortable, how have the discussions been with, with some of the larger Asian economies and, and Asian governments, uh, Singapore being somewhat of an outlier and, and I would say somewhat atypical? Yeah, it's, I, I mean, um, the, my observation in dealing in Asia is what I call is incredibly pragmatic. They take a very, very pragmatic approach to all of this stuff. So it's not to say that the US doesn't have data liquidity. It's one of the most liquid data markets in the world, but it's what I would call a little bit more of a gray market in that a lot of the solutions around governance and approaches to privacy uh, have been left to the private sector, and same with uh, with you know data portability. They've been left to private sector solutions, as opposed to the um, kind of the extreme uh, regulatory interventions in a market like Europe. Um, I would say uh, the pragmatic approach taken by Asia is very much around uh, a deep appreciation of the value of data, um, and and a pretty a sharp appreciation of of citizen rights, and then. 
um, aspiring to strike the perfect balance between privacy and innovation. And I, I think that's the hallmark feature outside of China. I mean, I think China is a fascinating uh, case because it's an economy built on pure liquid data. And as a result of that, you've seen the incredible boom in fintech, you've seen their incredible leadership in AI. And so they kind of show you what's possible and what the future looks like. Um, but their concepts of privacy don't translate to any other developed market in the world. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're the example of, of innovation at one extreme and privacy at the other. And Europe for a long time has been the example of pri privacy at one extreme at the expense of innovation. I think that's just about to shift in Europe, which is, uh, which is very promising. But Asia, uh, I think, um, demonstrates the pragmatism that I think is, is where we're all going to end up in a mature state. And actually, if we, if we drill into that a little bit, and, and there's an interesting outcome uh, as a function of COVID-19, where in, in my conversations with, with U.S. officials, for example, they, um, they simply don't believe the information coming out of China. And, and to your point, their view is that be, because of that data liquidity, they, they have a very, very good handle on exactly what happened. Uh, their economy is based on that liquidity. Uh, they're simply choosing not to disclose it. And which, which without getting into the, the politics of that, how, how for Data Republic, is, is this the type of thing where, where there would be regional deployments based upon those privacy constraints? And, and to give you an extreme example, like, like when would you envision at a, at a, at a sovereign level we would see China and the U.S. exchanging data as liquid as they are in their own internal markets, or is that just not going to happen? I, I, it's it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, the geopolitical aspects of data is really, really interesting. I, I wrote a paper a couple of years ago called "The Global Data Wars," um, uh, which tried to map out this um, uh, this perceived trade-off that markets are trying to navigate between privacy and innovation as it relates to data. Um, I think the single biggest um, event that's going to shape globally data over the next uh, decade or single biggest regulatory shift, which has actually started emerging out of India um, and is expanding outwards, is data sovereignty. So this mm -hmm. idea that data relating to citizens cannot leave um, the, the shores. Now, that, that has been a, obviously a core concept of China for a long time, but we haven't seen it in a lot of other markets. Um, in the EU data strategy that was published mid-February, they outlined a framework for data sovereignty outside of the EU bloc, pure liquidity within the EU, and then sovereignty um, as it relates to the EU navigating the rest of the world, regulated cross-border trade and data, et cetera. So I, in some respects, why SWIFT is a good analogy is because you can imagine this world where money moves quite freely across borders, but it is done in an incredibly transparent and highly regulated way. Mm. And I think that's perhaps um, the best map for where data will end up in the long term. That's interesting. And we're, so you, so it will, again, to put it in layman's terms, do you see it truly becoming globalized with, within, a, within a framework uh, that all these sovereigns would adhere to? I, I think it will, but I think, uh, and I think there will need to be interoperability. But uh, the one, um, uh, uh, the one belief that we have that I think is is quite contrarian uh, to most of the rest of the world as they are navigating this is, I don't believe that we're going to see 
large scale uh, free flows of raw data, which is what we've seen to, to date. Um, I think um, one of the great flaws that's been built into the designs of open data economies, you know, open banking, U UK, uh, PSD2, even consumer data art in Australia, is they advocate for the free flow of raw data from high security organizations to lower security organizations, or, or even if they are the same security, it's a replication of a data asset, which is just increasing systemic risk in a digital economy. Mm. Um, data sovereignty is going to stop those flows across borders. So I don't think we're going to see flows of data between countries. I think that's data moving to algorithms. I think we're going to see algorithms moving to data across borders. Interesting. And so that uh, that almost at an architectural level is a very, very different way to design something. And how how if let's go local for a second, and, and I'm purposely going to keep Singapore out of this and pick pick something that's dysfunctional. So if we look at the U.S., I mean, is it conceivable that internally, you know, in, in, in the context of this, as as a as a sovereign, the U.S. could say to the private sector, look, we're going to start consuming. We, we need you on this network and we need to start consuming this information. We need this liquidity internally so that we can, you know, we can, not, look, near term, we can manage this health crisis. Uh, but longer term, this is going to give us more data points on the economy. So, I mean, is it conceivable that individually, to your point, people will replicate the model in China and say, look, this will give us greater control over the economy, the more insight we have to this information? Um, I, I don't. Th I don't think that all approaches will be um, the same because, you know, you know, uh, markets' relation to data has a even has a cultural domain to it. So, you know, how some European nations feel about data and their relationship with data and their governments is very different <laughs> to how mm -hmm. some Asian countries uh, feel about data and and their governments' relation to it, which is very different to how the US feels about it, and it's very different to how Australia feels about it. So um, I, I do think that um, our belief is that there are three critical pieces of infrastructure um, that, are, that are necessary and potentially common or would be optimal if they were common across markets. And then those markets could determine how to implement them according to their own political and cultural um, uh, preferences. You know, firstly, the ability for organisations to connect uh, and agree and enact on data sharing. Uh, so that kind of networked uh, enterprise software. Our belief is that should be built on privacy by design, secure by design principles so that no personal information should ever touch that network. Um, we built a separate decentralized architecture um, for managing PI matching between organizations um, so that the PI uh, personal information never leaves either enterprise. And that same architecture, which means personal information can be matched between enterprises where consent exists without the PI ever leaving actually works between two countries. Hmm. So, so data sovereignty can be honored. Uh, the PI can remain in the country, but you can actually move the insight um, between markets. But the third critical piece of infrastructure I think is needed for a really um, pervasive governed data economy is consent management. So our belief is we are going to need to see some kind of open source consent management protocol that is adopted in common uh, between enterprises in a market, between public and private sector, and ideally across markets, so that consumers can be involved in the decision for data sharing in an open and transparent way. 
only then do I think that we're going to see the full potential of a data economy. It's interesting. And, and Danny, you know, when I, I remember when we first met and um, you you were drawing the distinction between, and, and you used the company's name as a, as a basis for this, where you said, you know, we're data republic, we're not the data empire. There are, there are empires out there. And for our listeners, could, could you explain that, that, the basis for that and how you explained it to me? I thought that was really helpful. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I think it's everyone's becoming increasingly aware we live in an era of data empires um, where um, certain large global tech companies have a monopoly on data. Um, so, you know, between Google and Facebook from the US and um, uh, Alibaba and Tencent out of China, these are just absolute data giants. Uh, and they do operate in an ability to move data freely across borders in a fully globalized way. Um, and they function off the value of observed data. So what are people actually doing? Um, you know, and that's a big shift in the world we used to live in where most of our data around what people were doing came from research, it was expressed data. So this observed data is, is incredibly valuable. So the combined market cap of Google and Facebook is, you know, depending on um, uh, which part of the COVID cycle we're in is, you know, well north of a trillion dollars. Yet those data signals are actually relatively weak. Um, search intent for Google and social interaction for Facebook compared to the data signals that sit inside the transactional um, enterprises that make up most economies, banks, airlines, telcos, retailers, insurers, etc. So, our belief is if you the distinction between those those kind of two worlds is the enterprise data is fragmented and trapped with inside the enterprise. But if you can enable the connection of all of that transactional data within a domestic economy, collectively, that asset is worth a factor more than the data assets of Google and Facebook. And so we think about um, the name Data Republic as being um, an inspiration for organizations to, to band together, um, to stand up, I guess, to the to the tyranny of data empires um, built on principles of good governance as most republics are. That's it, and I love that. And, and how, when, when, if I can squeeze in one last question here, how, when, when you're expressing and your teams are expressing this value proposition to um, the chief data officers and chief technology officers at these organizations, because I would imagine their first instinct is, well, this is mine and, and I've invested a lot building a data lake and then I've got all these great bells and whistles. How, how, what is the value proposition to them to say, Hey, actually you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to build a fence around just your, your information. How, how do you get them across the line where they realize that by, by being part of a Republic, that, that one and one truly is three for them. How do you express that to them? Yeah, we, we talk about it as the um, uh, organizational data maturity curve um, that enterprises go on, and it tends to be um, pretty consistent uh, across markets and across industries. And so the first place where enterprises are is internal data optimization, which is exactly as you talked about. How do I actually organize my own data around my own customers inside my organization to make it accessible internally? to integrate it into my systems and ensure that I'm actually extracting all the insights from my own data. Generally speaking, the next thing that happens is they hit the limitations of their own internal capability to deal with that data. 
Um, so an, an example of, of that is, you know, we have a, a very large um, health insurance uh, customer in the US that has an incredible treasure trove of data um, and a great set of internal capability. But um, that is a mere fraction of the capability around AI, ML and data analytics in the health sector that exists around the world. And so our platform enables them to um, onboard uh, these capability partners from Sydney, London, Israel, um, Stanford, um, wherever the capability is. And previously, that would have been a very long process for a small startup to get access to enterprise data. Um, you know, think about the idea of legal, technical, due diligence, security, um, procurement, etc. Um, whereas we're able to enable them to onboard uh, a new capability partner every couple of weeks. Um, and to test that. So that gives them the ability to scale their innovation capability around their own data. Um, so that tends to be the kind of the next step. People are going, well, now I can do more with my own data. Once they they lean into that world, the next um, realization they generally come to is, I only actually have a limited perspective on what's going on in my customer's world. So a bank, for instance, that has a credit card might have one of their four credit cards or um, uh, might have the mile wide inch deep perspective on consumer spend, but not know uh, what a supermarket knows or a retailer knows or an insurer knows. Um, and so by being able to combine their data asset with another um, organization's data asset and share insights that create value for each other, both can achieve a high level of personalization. So it's this general progression of a data strategy that ultimately marches them towards from internal data optimization to innovating at scale to data collaboration to what we're seeing now in public and private data sharing uh, initiatives. And then ultimately the view we see is cross-border data trades and uh, global free trade in data. So, and, and to talk, talk my book a little bit and forgive me, I'm going to be a little bit in the gray here. One of the things that I, I personally have seen firsthand has been the, the ability for your framework to, to put in colloquial terms, to, to literally collapse the sales cycle. So going back to, you know, when, when we look at our predominant client base, which is U.S. firms and a, and a good breadth of U.S. fintech firms, and as they have been looking to come to Southeast Asia, you know, back to your earlier point, what would have been a 12 to 18 month sales cycle between finding out who's going to give them the technical approval to do it, who has wallet share to, to actually fund the project. Um, you know, we, we've seen it firsthand where that's collapsed to, two weeks and and it really becomes just a function of like you know just prove your use case everything's set just prove the use case so you know that that has been i think the big eye opener for the the you know in this particular case fintechs as they look to expand to southeast asia and now realizing that that huge impediment in terms of process and structure and framework and governance has been solved you know and and now it's just up to them whether or not it's like hey does your technology work yeah, it's it's um, it, it's fascinating, Frank. I mean, one of the uh, being a platform, which we are in the sense that we don't build any of the data applications or the end do the end data science work ourselves. We that's for our customers and and the partners that operate on our network and the capability companies, and we and we try to remain pure as a platform so that we don't kind of compete downstream. But one of the great frustrations uh, with being a platform is um, people buy use cases, not platforms. 
And, and we often find discovery of the use cases by the innovations that our customers are doing for us. And to give you a, an example of something that's happened for us recently, which I can't believe we didn't think of before, um, but two uh, relatively material organizations in a sector uh, were considering a merger or are considering a merger. And they, uh, one of those organizations had a chief data officer who'd worked with us previously in a, in a previous role. And they determined that they would do all of the pre-synergy work by matching their customer databases and doing the full analytics mm -hmm. uh, on the combined asset so that they knew down to the dollar <laughs> everything before the merger. Uh, and that was not done by the advisors or the lawyers, um, but that was actually done by um, the data science teams of the two organizations. Uh, and we're now seeing our second uh, M&A use case again come from a different sector and a different organization who'd worked with us previously. So um, that's a really interesting use case, which I just think, um, you know, uh, having, you know, in a lifetime ago, being an investment banker, um, all mergers should be pre-analyzed. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, and to your point, the I, I found that when, when your team first shared that, I, on, on the one hand, I was surprised because it's so obvious. And, and to your point, when you think about the the workflow of an M&A transaction, uh, actually how little work is actually done in at that tactical level to say, will this actually work versus just some spreadsheet extrapolation, which which is a you know well placed guesstimate. And I think that I truly believe that. I, I think Danny, that was that was uh, a wonderful outcome, and will inevitably make itself just part of the standard workflow for any transaction. And and uh, and why wouldn't you do that? You have the information there. You can test against the data. So why why wouldn't you do that to validate? Uh, the economic value that you're discussing, you know, and again, customers provide you that. And and importantly, uh, the organizations didn't compromise anything. So they didn't know which of their customers were the same. So if the merger did fall over, they didn't create any competitive risk in that process. Um, uh, that whole concept of, you know, de-identified um, uh, tokenized um, uh, data matching means they could get to the insight, they could share the insight without their data leaving either organization. And that's the key to this, breaking this perceived trade-off between privacy and innovation. The goal, our goal is a relentless march towards more privacy and more innovation at the same time. And, it's, and I, I actually owe you, in the context of what I do 9 to 5, I owe you guys a big thank you. We had a, I don't know if I shared this with you, but we had a um, transaction we were looking at and we were, uh, talking with the head of sales. And, uh, and to your point, we were hearing this grand vision for Southeast Asia. And one of the fellows on my team said, hey, by the way, we really want you to use Data Republic because it's, it's going to collapse your sales cycle from 12 months down to two weeks. And it was the, it was the funniest thing. You literally could have heard a pin drop. And I'll never forget, my, my colleague turned to me and he said, yeah, he said, this there was no customers on the other side of this. He said, this guy was just interested in keeping his job for 12 months. There was nothing there. And the validation that, that you know, you guys are in a position to collapse it to that succinct a test point uh, is incredible. And and even for us, for what we do, it's been a wonderful due diligence point. So uh, so kudos well, to I'm, you, Mr. Gilligan. Well, mate, I, I think that what you're also demonstrating there is the role of uh, partners like yourselves, because, you know, we don't do, uh, you know, we don't do the use case creation. We don't do um, that, that client work directly ourselves. Um, we aim to be 
you know, we sign up to a major, we sign up a major enterprise client like a major airline or a bank uh, or a telco, uh, and then it's really for them and their partners to find all of the innovative use cases that exist on that. So, you know, the kind of partners that we work with, as you know, um, Centre Hill is an example of of that, and and we're now seeing um, law firms. Uh, who are interested, uh, who are being involved in some of these um, emergent negotiations and JVs uh, to, to, again, collapse the time frame and complexity by getting down to what are the real issues. We have consulting firms like McKinsey and PwC um, who are helping build um, innovation and ecosystem strategies uh, for their clients. Uh, we have um, uh, technology partners um, and this universe, this growing universe of capability partners who have a, an application or an insight engine um, and are just desperate to be able to access the enterprise data. Um, and that's the most exciting thing that we see over time is, uh, you know, if our, our decade-long ambition would be to enable the app store for enterprise data applications at a partner mm-hmm. and, a, and a capability level so that a uh, chief data officer of a bank could look at what other peer banks around the world are doing around um, um, debt analysis or personalization and then, you know, click to deploy and test a capability uh, within a couple of weeks. And forgive me, I'm going to sneak in one last question if I can. What the, the, uh, our listeners have heard me talk about Singapore uh, at Infinum, but for, for you, maybe can you give just a little color on, why Singapore of, of all the, you and I know the answer to this, but I think our listeners would benefit hearing, hearing it from you. I mean, what have you seen from Singapore that's different? Well, I, I mean, uh, um, so Singapore has perhaps the most ambitious and remarkable top-down strategy to be um, a data-driven nation of, of any that I've seen in, in the developed world. Um, perhaps only recently rivaled by the publication of the recent EU data strategy which is obviously on a much, much longer arc, but very well considered. Um, so Singapore has, I think, two conditions that, that give it an advantage um, to, um, to really lead the world in governed data ecosystems. One of this is this, is this wonderfully considered, incredibly intelligent top-down policy framework um, built around uh, data sharing, consent, data portability, and creating all the right conditions. And then secondly is quite a concentrated, um, you know, market, particularly with the Tomasic group of companies. Um, and so you can six, seven, eight relationships and you can connect up most sector, sec, um, sectors of the economy at, at scale in Singapore. And so you're able to find all of the new insights first. So it could very well be that, a lot of these cross-industry collaborations and new insights that get formed and created get created in Singapore first. And I'll contrast that with the US, which obviously has a much, much bigger potential of the market, but is so much more fragmented. Mm. So you can imagine that the time it will take to create those connections across the US will just be that much longer. Um, so I think uh, Singapore, particularly with its, um, and then secondly, um, because of the pragmatic, sensible approach that Singapore tends to take to these kind of technological challenges, a lot of their initiatives tend to get mirrored in other markets in Southeast Asia. Uh, so it places them in a great position to help lead uh, the connectivity across uh, across Southeast Asia uh, and then potentially uh, beyond that. So um, our, our belief is a lot of the new things uh, that will happen first will happen uh, happen in Singapore over time. 
I agree. And I think, you know, and Danny, if, if you don't mind, I could probably keep you here for another two hours. So as, as a teaser to our listeners, I think we can wrap it there. And at the same time, I'd, I'd love to have you back on again, because in the context of Singapore, and you and I have talked about this offline, it's I, data will become crucial as these global economies start to recover. And, and I think the inability for folks to travel will, will lend themselves to thinking about data republic even more. Uh, in, in their own tactical use cases. So, so again, thank you for taking the time today. I know that you are incredibly busy. Uh, greatly appreciate you being here today. And I, I hope we can have you on again in the near future. It was a great pleasure, Frank, and I'd be very delighted to join you again. Thank you, sir. And with that, to our listeners, thank you again for tuning into this week's edition of Unhedged. Please be safe and healthy this weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.